Hello, Jenny Roper, editor of Work Magazine here, popping up very quickly before this episode of What If, just to let you know that if you're enjoying this podcast, chances are you'll love Sister Title Management Today's podcast too. The Leadership Lessons podcast delves into the world of leadership and management, bringing insights, trends and advice to the ears of busy senior leaders. Previous interviewees include author Amy Gallo, British Heart Foundation CEO Charmaine Griffiths and kidnap negotiator Scott Walker. Get it wherever you usually get your podcasts. Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to Series 4 of What If? a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. Hello and welcome to this episode of What If? I'm Jenny Roper, editor of Work magazine. On 24th of February 2022, the world could not quite believe its eyes. You might call it naivety, but despite Russia having begun to amass troops at Ukraine's border the previous spring, most, including many Ukrainians, simply did not believe Putin would actually do it. The war has reforged global alliances, drawing Moscow closer to Beijing, Iran and North Korea. Along with this reshaping of the geopolitical landscape has come the possible end of globalisation, with many businesses given serious cause to reassess whether relying on grain, auto parts and palm oil supplied from thousands of miles away is really the best idea. Then, of course, there's the still fresh memory of the pandemic, the event most of us could never have believed would happen until it did, which has all left us trying desperately to expect the unexpected, to anticipate the next unthinkable global crisis. One possible answer comes courtesy of fears intensified directly by the war in Ukraine, what if, many are now asking, China invaded Taiwan? What if Russia's invasion has served to further embolden China's leader, Xi Jinping? Since he came to power in 2012, he has stressed that the Taiwan issue, in his words, cannot be passed on from generation to generation and has now, according to US intelligence, ordered the country's military to be ready for a 2027 annexation. Or is an invasion perhaps the wrong eventuality to focus on in relation to China? Are there other, bigger, geopolitical issues we should be paying more attention to? Its involvement in Western energy and telecommunication infrastructure, for example. Or simply its status as a world economic superpower. Whether this influence is growing or shrinking, and what this means for politicians and businesses alike. To help me unpack this biggest of big picture questions, and understand what it might all mean at a more local level, I spoke to two experts on all things China. Rana Mitter is Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford. Charlie Parton is Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and a former diplomat, working in China, Hong Kong and Taiwan for 22 years. First off, a short history lesson to find out why China might want to take control of the island of Taiwan. Here's Rana. The question of Taiwan status is a controversial issue because... It's essentially one of the great unresolved questions of international politics. Taiwan is a very unusual entity in international politics, which is that it's an unrecognized state. 
That means that it has all the attributes of a state. It has a stable governmental system, as it happens, a multi-party liberal democracy. It has also relations with many other parts of the global system of international relations, including being part of the international aviation network, trade network, and so forth. But it is not a recognized country at the United Nations. Instead, its status is ambiguous because in 1949, when the Chinese Communist Party conquered the Chinese mainland, they were unable to take Taiwan as part of the wider People's Republic of China, which was being founded at that time. At the same time, the defeated regime on the Chinese mainland, the nationalist or Kuomintang under Chiang Kai-shek, went into exile on the island and maintained that they were the only recognized government of China called the Republic of China. So that's different from the People's Republic of China. And a version of that situation remains even today. So today you have essentially two places, the Chinese mainland and the island of Taiwan. The People's Republic of China makes a claim to all of the territory of what has been China at one of its widest definitions, which would include Taiwan. Taiwan as the Republic of China, no longer maintains a claim over the mainland, which at some levels would be you know, rather difficult for a small island, but it does maintain the title Republic of China. And that means that, technically speaking, in international politics, there is no resolution to the question of who is sovereign, but the People's Republic of China maintains that there is only one China, and therefore any part of China counts as part of the PRC, the Republic of China on Taiwan disputes that very strongly. So why now? Why so many reports in the media come 2023 fearing an invasion could be imminent? Here's Charlie. It's not just the media that sometimes has reported that an invasion is going to happen by you know this year, next year, by 2027. I mean, a number of American generals and think tank people have also said that. Why are people thinking this? Partly because the Chinese Communist Party wants you to think that. What it's trying to do is break the will of the Taiwanese people to make them, and indeed the wider world, think that the unification of Taiwan with China is both irresistible and inevitable. And so you see a lot of build-up of incursions, in both by air and by sea, and threatening military exercises, for instance. And that you know, suggests to people that they're getting ready for foreign invasion. To your question, is the Chinese Communist Party going to invade Taiwan? My answer is no, it won't. I mean, there are two reasons. One is the military reason. It's very difficult to invade across a sea of 100 nautical miles, frequently rough onto a terrain, 14 beaches against uh, defence, etc., etc. The likelihood of failure is very high. You'd have to mobilise probably 2 million men in total, including logistics and everything else. And you don't know whether the Americans are going to step in. And if you fail... That is a really bad thing for the Communist Party and possibly might even lead to very severe unrest and its overthrow. And it would certainly lead to the end of the Xi Jinping's so-called China dream of making China the number one country in the world. So I don't think for military reasons, but much more powerful than that, the economic reasons. If China were to invade or indeed to blockade, that would result in the world economy cratering. Uh, it would result in Taiwanese exports to China, which are mainly components and go into either things that China exports or uses in, within its own economy, they would plummet too. Which isn't to say there won't be an escalation of tensions relating to this activity, explains Charlie. I mean, I should say that I still am, and nevertheless am slightly worried because even if the intention is not to invade, the opportunities for misunderstandings in terms of 
planes crashing into each other. The Chinese have been buzzing American, Canadian, Australian planes very dangerously, letting off chaff right in front of them, in front of their engines, which could cause an accident, uh, as happened in 2001, or putting their ships right across the bows of American warships. So if there is a collision and one of the ships sinks, there is obviously scope for this to be escalated. So not an easy situation. And here's Rana, echoing Charlie's thoughts around how difficult it would be logistically for China to mount a full-scale invasion, but warning too that this doesn't mean military aggression isn't on the cards. An attempt to essentially launch an amphibious attack on an island or even on a mainland is very difficult to organise. You have to only think back to D-Day, which is perhaps one of the most famous examples of this, to think about how much planning went into the attempt to try and recapture mainland Europe. The idea of a full-scale invasion, in the sense that people might imagine in a film, is probably not all that likely, at least in the near term. When people think about the way in which Taiwan could be pressured or coerced into essentially reunifying with China, the scenarios that are put forward are usually more gradual or partial than that. One of them is the idea of a naval blockade of the islands. That doesn't involve any invasion actually taking place, but it does involve the PLA, People's Liberation Army Navy of China, essentially making the Taiwan Straits impossible by the use of naval vessels. And that, of course, would not be a full-scale attack in the way that firing missiles at uh, cities would be, but it would make it very difficult for supplies to come in and out of the island and could be a form of blockade in that sense. Like Charlie, Rana believes even this more subtle form of aggression could lead to heightened tensions in the region and beyond. If there was some evidence that there were actually a demonstrable and defined military move on Taiwan, I think there's no doubt the United States in its current formation would regard it as a highly provocative act. I think that that's also inevitably true of Japan, regardless of who's in the the White House, and probably true of at least some of the Northeast Asian allies of uh, the US, South Korea being a good example of that. If you look at the wider sense of what a blockade or some sort of sense of change in Taiwan status would mean, it would essentially mean that the capacity of the Asia-Pacific region, the world's most economically dynamic region, and also beyond that, the wider global economy, could no longer rely on what it's really taken for granted for, let's say, the last 40 years or so, which is that despite various regional flare-ups and occasional raisings of temperature, that the Asia-Pacific region has broadly been stable, broadly been peaceful, and broadly reliable. All of those things would be put into grave contention by an upending of the peace uh, and prosperity of the region, which is one of the reasons why uh, a change in Taiwan status would certainly not just affect Taiwan. It will be an issue for the Asia Pacific as a whole and beyond that as well. But even putting aside this threat of military action for a moment, there is a wider movement of the Western China decoupling anyway, says Charlie already very much in motion and betraying a threat perhaps much larger than that of an invasion. Governments around the world are finally starting to wake up to this danger, he reports. One, he explains, is both an issue of insecurity of supply and of data security and surveillance. China's involvement with nuclear energy and telecoms infrastructure in the UK and beyond, advisable or otherwise, is well-trodden in the press. Less well-known about is the very specific, very significant threat posed by Cellular Internet of Things, IoT, modules, as Charlie explains. 
So the cellular module is basically a very small device, a couple of centimetres squared, perhaps in size. It contains the ability for geolocation. It connects up to the internet. The whole point is it connects up to the internet in a way that Wi-Fi doesn't. It doesn't drop out like Wi-Fi does. It connects up like your, your cellular mobile phone does. And so what China is in, intent on dominating the market and eventually monopolizing the market, because once they establish that monopoly, you get three things. One, you get vast amounts of data because the data goes back through those modules. And if you, if you put the modules in, you will get it. Secondly, if you have a monopoly of these, then you can say to countries like the UK, well, we supply all your modules without which you cannot exist, your economy cannot exist, very, very few things will exist. You know, you have no electricity, you have no cars, um, and we don't like your policy on Xinjiang or whatever it is, so you better change it, otherwise we'll cease the supply. And thirdly, you can, through updating software, you can either make them misbehave or simply stop them. And that's an enormous threat at a time where you might be in, in considerable tension with the Chinese Communist Party or even a state of conflict. And none of this is science fiction. This is quite possible. Or if you're thinking about the data, we don't know the full de details of this, but in January, there was an interesting report in, in iNews which said that the security service had got very worried about data exiting from a government car through what they called a Chinese eSIM. Now, they meant the cellular IoT module. So it's eminently possible to get the data. And you can imagine, you know, ministers drive around their cars and they discuss quite a lot of important business. Or you can follow those cars. So not surprisingly, the government are really, really concerned about this. And I've heard it, you know, from people who really know within the government that they are definitely, what was the word somebody used? Petrified, I think. So this is something where I'm afraid we will have to decouple from China. Sobering, spy thriller-esque stuff. Charlie adds that the Chinese Communist Party's continued approach to sharing of information in relation to COVID is certainly not helping relations. Claims that the virus might have leaked from a Chinese laboratory were first made by Donald Trump and so dismissed by many as a fringe, ultimately racist conspiracy theory. But they have recently resurfaced from more legitimate sources, with FBI Director Christopher Wray announcing the Bureau believes COVID-19 most likely originated in a Chinese government-controlled lab. The issue, Charlie points out, isn't so much one of whether it was leaked deliberately, but the fact the investigation into its origins has been so continually frustrated by lack of cooperation with international fact-finding. Whatever the origins of COVID and whether they'll ever be properly discovered, I'm not, in a sense, so fussed about that. Of course, we should be. I mean, it's very important to know what they were. But what I mean is that what's come out of that, what we're left with at the moment, is the fact that the Chinese Communist Party covered it up, that it was not open with the world, that it put pressure on, on the WHO, tried, in a sense, through propaganda and other things, to take advantage of COVID rather than cooperate with the world. And I think that has done an awful lot to destroy trust between China and the rest of the world. But putting COVID aside and returning for a moment to the perhaps currently more pressing matter of IoT modules, what do we do about our reliance on perhaps addiction to these vital components? There are in fact plenty of other non-Chinese companies that supply them, Charlie points out, which gets us on to the question of what the implications might be, not just for governments, but for ordinary organisations. Their role, similarly to the threat posed by cellular IoT modules in general, has long been a neglected area, says Charlie. 
Pointing to an Intelligence and Security Committee's report published by UK government in July this year, he explains that the threat of covert and indeed overt surveillance is a long-standing one, and one concerning not just many public but also privately held organisations in the UK. The ISC report makes very clear that what it calls a whole-of-state threat that some of the losses that we're sustaining through either the theft of our science and technology or the buying of our technology as China buys up some of our startups or some of our companies with interesting and useful IP, or the hiring of our brains by getting academics to do projects on behalf of the Chinese state. This is as big a threat when it relates to technologies which either are boosting China's military abilities or are boosting the surveillance state. Both our government in terms of protecting against those threats and individual actors, whether that's companies or universities, have been very lax on this. And sometimes, I think certainly recently, when they really by now should be aware of the threat, I think it stoops into culpable negligence. And and just to give you a few examples to show you how difficult this is, though, and how wide it is, there's a university that's cooperating with Chinese on the salinity of seawater. And you might say, well, that's a perfectly innocent topic, isn't it? Because maybe that's to do with climate change or whatever. But actually, the people they're cooperating come from the People's Liberation Army Navy Department or the academics associated with the PLA Navy. And why is that so of interest to them? Because the salinity of seawater affects greatly how you're able to detect submarines. Uh, and secondly, how torpedoes operate when they're fired. So That's just one example, but there are many others. So um, I think it's necessary for academics or businesses to be very much more careful about the technologies they may be sharing. Many more organisations than are currently aware then need to be vigilant, but many still won't need to be. So what do they need to know about China? What about a vague sense many have of China's ever-increasing importance as an economic superpower? Is this accurate? Are we really all going to need to speak Chinese, as the cliché has it? Here's Rana. China will be an important economic, military and political power in the world for decades to come, probably more than that. It has always been a large and important country, it will continue to be one. I think that the competition which exists both in the United States and China to try and decide who's going to be number one is first of all something of a false argument because it, um, when asked the question like, what do you mean by number one, people often have slightly vague answers. If it ends up with being something like GDP, I mean, it's still potentially possible that China could become number one on the grounds that it's got, you know, 1.3 billion people. There's no guarantee that's the case because China is currently in a bit of an economic slowdown. Uh, it's not shrinking. It's still growing. It's just growing less fast. In terms of Mandarin language, when people sometimes talk about it uh, spreading, and I personally think it's a good idea for as many people to learn Chinese as possible, and I hope that they do. It's nonetheless very evidently the case that the world as a whole is not learning Chinese. It's notable that when you look at the uh, politics of the Asia-Pacific region, institutions like ASEAN, almost always the language that people default to is English. Speaking Chinese in those institutions would look a little bit too much like essentially taking on the language of the most powerful actor in the region, the same for China. Right now, China is at something of a fork in the road when it comes to the economy. It's now clear, more than half a year after the COVID restrictions ended in China, pretty much later than anywhere else in the world, that the initial bounce back, particularly in areas like um, consumption, have not been sustained 
there are particular aspects of this that are very visible and talked about widely. Youth unemployment is the one that's made the headlines most with, at least in some calculations, 20% of China's youth aged between 16 and 24 being out of a job. Also linked to that, the issue not of unemployment, but underemployment, in which candidates with degrees, graduates, are not getting graduate level jobs and are creating strong sense of, of resentment as a result of, uh, of all of that. Other issues also link into that. There is actually a deflationary trend in China at the moment, which is different from much of the rest of the world. But that has its own implications, for instance, for China's local government debt, which will actually end up being more expensive to pay up rather than less so because of the effects of a deflation potentially. And I think that's one of the many reasons why actually right now you see that China's public language, certainly within the last few weeks has become much less confrontational and much keener to welcome in but certainly allow in American high-level politicians to engage in, in dialogue because I think there is a perception that the heightened tensions between the two sides had lots of bad effects but one of them was certainly to freeze the idea of investment in China itself. So what do those doing business in the region need to know in terms of cultural nuances and ways of working? What key steers can Rana and Charlie impart? One of the things I often encourage people to do when trying to get you know, into what's happening in China is to uh, watch Chinese television programmes. It's actually very easy to do because you can just go on YouTube and they're all there with English subtitles. You don't just need to know any Chinese. So I suggest watch a few recent Chinese TV dramas. The one that's been a massive hit in the year 2023, is called The Knockout, Quang Biao. And it's a tale, if anyone may have seen the show, Line of Duty. So if you're interested in basically anti-corruption cops and what they get up to, and understanding what tens of millions of people sit down to watch on a weekday evening while eating supper, is, I think, as useful a way to understand a culture as it is to maybe read its poetry or to work out how many nuclear missiles it might have. But understanding there's a sense that China is a place that has its own cultural norms and values is a very useful starting point. First of all, don't assume that economic change and reform necessarily means that the political system is going to change. Second, don't make an assumption that the Chinese themselves think of their own system as being in some way inferior or illegitimate just because it is not a democratic system. And thirdly, and this is perhaps the, the toughest one to, to grasp in a sense, be aware in China in particular that the very turbulent history of China you know, ever since World War II has led to very different expectations in many ways about uh, long and short-term planning, uh, about you know how life is going to be, whether it's tomorrow morning or in 10 years' time. And that affects lots of things to do with many aspects of business investments, for instance, because so many things have happened, cultural revolution, and that none of those things were necessarily predictable, but they all shape the way in which people calculate long and short-term decisions. Charlie takes us right back to the world of BBC drama-worthy espionage in answering this same question. Indeed, his pointers chime with recent headlines concerning a Chinese spy using fake LinkedIn profiles to lure thousands of Britons into handing over state secrets. My advice to anybody going to China is, for God's sake, take a separate, what they call a burner phone, which you never use for any other business, and a separate cheap computer with nothing on it except what you need in China, because both those will be copied. And just be wary and careful and don't make yourself vulnerable. I know plenty of people in business who've been approached by Chinese security services, sometimes in a very obvious way, blackmail, in others, not that much more subtle, but, but with offers of money. 
I was set up by a British academic, as, as British as I am, who I'm sure was working for the Chinese and being paid for it and knew what he was doing. And I met representatives, no doubt, of the Ministry of State Security, and they tried to recruit me. Um, and I turned them down. So, yes, it happens a very considerable amount. More prosaically, Charlie adds the importance of being aware of a very different negotiation style in China. There's a very different attitude to negotiations. I think in, in the West, this is something where we, we're looking for compromise, and that's what we're rewarded for. But Chinese take a much more confrontational attitude. It, it's about a battle to be won, and compromise is quite likely to be seen as you know, a retreat or even defeat. Again, I think we have to be very careful about the whole question of of concessions. Don't advance them too quickly. They'll just be pocketed and not considered as concessions anyway. You know, make them in the sense that they can always be taken off the table uh, if they're not met with similar concessions on the other side. And I think in experience, all the best sort of progress was made, not officially over the negotiation table, but in sort of side dinners or, or side entertainments. And then when it's over, it ain't over. I mean, I think anyone who's dealt with China will know that if you think the negotiations are finished and agreement is reached, it will always be reopened. Wise words. But this episode is definitely almost over and needs drawing to a close. So will China invade Taiwan? Probably not in the way most of us might imagine it. But that isn't to say tensions in the region might not suddenly escalate in a way that will have significant ramifications, both politically and economically, around the globe. Closer to home, there's the perhaps more pressing matter for academic institutions and businesses of staying vigilant to attempts by the Chinese Communist Party to exert more influence or capture more data than we might in a liberal democracy feel comfortable with. What if the UK's electricity supply was suddenly cut off? What if a regime thousands of miles away was collecting data on your every move? Certainly the benefits of doing business with still one of the globe's most dominant economic forces will in most cases far outweigh any risks. But nonetheless, these are pressing questions government and business must address sooner rather than later. You have been listening to the What If podcast brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website. Hi there, Katie Jacobs here, co-host of What If. If you're enjoying our podcast, I'd love to let you know about another one I think might be up your street. In the Responsible Business Leading the Way podcast... I and my co-host, Professor Veronica Hope-Haley from the University of Bristol Business School, explore the role of business in society and what responsible leadership looks like in a world that continues to lurch from crisis to crisis. To do so, we're joined by inspirational and insightful leaders from organisations including Microsoft, Tate & Lyle and the Bank of England. This limited series is produced by the University of Bristol Business School, working with the CIPD. To listen... Just search Responsible Business Leading the Way wherever you get your podcasts.